You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Hawaii joined 10 other states and jurisdictions in passing a law to allow medically assisted dying. The bill kicked in back in January of 2019. John Radcliffe, longtime lobbyist and labor leader, championed the effort along with many others over several decades. Radcliffe suffered from a terminal illness and five months ago decided to end his life. He was the first to ask for a prescription under the law. Some 60 others have since followed. The medical condition that it ends shortens the amount and duration of extraordinary, extreme pain and suffering that must be endured. This is all about relief, life-ending relief. That was John Radcliffe, who likened himself to the poster boy for Our Care, Our Choice. We reached out to a group which worked to pass the medical aid in dying law. Samantha Trad is Hawaii State Director with Compassion and Choices. So the Our Care, Our Choice Act took about 20 years to pass. In 2018, it passed through the legislature and became law on January 1, 2019. In fact, John Radcliffe was the very first person in Hawaii to make an oral request for the medication. So what it, what it is, what, it, what the law does, is it authorizes the compassionate option of medical aid in dying for a person who has to meet a series of eligibility requirements and go, go through um, quite a lengthy process. So in order to be eligible for the Our Care, Our Choice Act, you need to be an adult, terminally ill with six months or less to live, you need to be mentally capable of making informed medical decisions. That means essentially that you need to be aware of what you're doing. You don't have Alzheimer's or advanced dementia, and you need to be a resident of Hawaii. And so in order to get a prescription, a person has to make two oral requests separated by a mandatory minimum 20 days to one physician and have a second physician confirm their eligibility. There's also two written requests one that has to be signed by two different qualified witnesses to show there's no coercion, and there's a mandatory mental health evaluation, a third of a health evaluation that needs to be done by a psychologist, psychiatrist, or social worker to confirm the voluntariness and mental capacity of the patient. So that's how the law works. I know it's a little complicated, um, but we do know it is possible for people to access the law. As I mentioned, John Radcliffe was the first person to make an oral request, and he was able to peacefully end his suffering in August, actually, of 2020. He used his medication and had a really beautiful end-of-life ceremony the way that he wanted to. We know from the Department of Health that in 2019, 30 people received prescriptions. And we will be getting the next official report out, but in October, their preliminaries showed that about 60 people total as of October had gotten prescriptions for the Our Care, Our Choice Act. We also know that there are very few doctors on the neighbor islands who are able to support patients in this option. So finding a doctor, especially if you're on a neighbor island, we get a lot of calls from the Big Island and particularly from terminally ill people who want this option but can't find a provider who can support them in this option. So that's one of the hurdles we're looking to overcome uh, with this legislation that I'm, I'm going to be talking about. Um, currently, advanced practice registered nurses, also often called nurse practitioners who have prescriptive authority, can already write prescriptions for controlled substances. However, the way the law is written, they're not able to write prescriptions for medical aid in dying. So we would like to see that restriction lifted so that nurse practitioners who used to understand they've gone through a great deal of education, um, they're, they're completely qualified to support patients in the option of medical aid in dying so that everyone's able to access this law, not just people who live in Honolulu and have good health insurance because that's kind of what we're seeing right now. The other thing is we know from data from Kaiser Hawaii and Hawaii Pacific Health, as well as from private physicians who've shared their internal data with us, that there's a large number of patients who do not survive the mandatory minimum 20-day waiting period and die in exactly the way that they, they didn't want to die. Mm. And um, Hawaii's law is based on Oregon's law, and in Oregon, they amended their law to allow the prescribing provider the ability to expedite that waiting period. So if a patient meets all of the qualifications, they still have to go through that whole process 
but they don't have to sit around and wait in excruciating pain for 20 days just to get a prescription. So the other amendment that we're looking to make is to allow the prescribing provider the, the ability to expedite that waiting period if the patient's unlikely to survive it. And Kaiser's numbers, you know, uh, I'm reading here from January 1st, 2019 to December 31st of 2020, 24% of their patients didn't survive the waiting process. At Hawaii yeah, Pacific fact, Health, it was 16%. Yeah, they met all of the eligibility requirements. And, you know, we hear from patients and their family members these heart-wrenching stories. You know, I think about one man on the Big Island who he wanted so desperately to be able to end his life on his terms. You know, you've got to understand, these people do not want to die. You know, that's why it's it's so offensive when people talk about this as though it's, it's a kind of suicide because, People who choose medical aid in dying, they want to live. They do not want to die. But their terminal illness has robbed them of life. And what a prescription for medical aid in dying does is it gives them a little bit of control over something that they don't have any control over. So if they they want to, they can peacefully end their suffering on their terms and not go down the course their terminal illness has for them. The problem of access is a big thing for uh, neighbor islands, the rural areas. And so then the bills that you folks uh, are introducing this session will hopefully remedy that? Yes. And the bills were based on recommendations made by the Hawaii Department of Health based on all of the input they received from medical providers. Because even, you know, like you mentioned the Kaiser numbers just last year, 34% of Kaiser patients who were going through the process didn't survive the mandatory minimum waiting period. And I got to tell you, Kaiser and Hawaii Pacific Health, they have the best internal processes that we've heard of. You know, if you're terminally ill and you want this option and you're at one of those healthcare systems, the fact that it's still difficult to get through, you know, is a huge red flag that, that the law is not working as intended. So the bills, they're, they're part of the Kapuna Caucus package, the Kapuna Caucus's priority bills. There's two identical bills, one in the Senate and one in the House. The Senate bill is SB839, and the House bill is HB487. And these two bills, they would allow advanced practice registered nurses with prescriptive authority, the ability to support patients in the option of medical aid in dying, and it would allow the prescribing provider the ability to expedite that mandatory minimum waiting period if the eligible patient is unlikely to survive. So again, the patient still has to go through the whole process. They need to meet all of the eligibility requirements, but they don't have to wait for those 20 days. And you mentioned that this bill, this legislation actually took 20 years uh, to pass. Uh, Has traditionally the House or the Senate been you know, stronger in the support? These bills were in the legislature last year, and they passed through four committees before the global pandemic hit and the legislature shut down. The Senate bill did actually get through the Senate. It was waiting to go through the House, and the House bill didn't quite make it out of the House, but it was very close. And I, I think that if the global pandemic hadn't hit, those bills would have made it all the way through, or at least one of them, and made it to the governor's desk. And the governor was supportive of the Our Care, Our Choice Act, so we think he'll sign this bill. And I have to ask, you know, with the COVID filter on, has that pandemic changed anything uh, for either patients who have applied for this? Mm -hmm. What are you hearing out in the field? You know, I'm eager to see the final Department of Health report. We do know that telemedicine has been hugely helpful, but I am concerned that, you know, patients who normally would have been able to go to their medical center and this process, you know, it was a lot more complicated with COVID-19. And I don't know, you know, I really don't know. I I can say medical aid in dying is not an option for somebody with COVID-19. That that illness doesn't give the patient the eligibility requirement of the terminal illness and the six-month prognosis. But I do wonder if the pandemic has caused more people to talk about death and dying. You know, I know it's a taboo topic that nobody likes to think about or talk about. Um, but the good news is, is talking about it doesn't mean you're going to die imminently. And actually, it can really help you plan for the end of your life. It's so important to talk to your doctor, to your providers, to your loved ones about how you would like your end-of-life experience to be. Because the truth is, most people don't die the way they want to. You know, most people die in hospitals, hooked up to machines. Their wishes often aren't honored. 
And our whole mission at Compassionate Choices is to empower everyone to start their own end-of-life journey. I guess with COVID, the most cruel thing is that many people aren't able to be with their loved ones physically at the end. And so I just wondered how that not having your loved ones there, you know, would it mm-hmm. affect somebody's decision one way or the other. But, uh, you know, if you're already yeah. terminal. I know of one doctor who does support patients in medical aid and dying who has gotten both shots for the vaccine, and he's really excited to be able to be present if the patient wants um, when they take their aid and dying medication, if the patient wants him there. So it is getting better. So that's good. Most of us tend to want to die at home, surrounded by our loved ones. So, you know, if that's at all possible, and that's something medical aid and dying really can help a person who's eligible be able to do, they can go peacefully when they want on their terms. And again, you know, these are not people who want to die. They are terminally ill. And, you know, another interesting statistic is that about one third of patients who go through the whole process to get their prescription never actually take the medication, but just having it on hand gives them a huge sense of relief. So if their suffering becomes unbearable, they can take that medication. I I met a man on the big island who told me he never felt more alive than the moment he got his medication and that he hoped he never has to take it, but he just said he was so relieved to not have to worry about what was going to happen with his terminal illness because he had this option ready and available the moment he needed it. And he actually never ended up taking the medication. And what happens to the medication in that case? So first of all, I think it's important to understand that patients who are terminally ill have a lot of lethal medication at home already. And so medical aid and dying is another one of those medications. And there's a protocol that the pharmacist will walk the patient and their family members through. So if they don't use their medication, then it can be returned to a qualified facility that will take that medication. And the pharmacist will make sure that the, that the patient and their family knows what to do with the medication. And in over 20 years of, of this law being in effect across the country, there's never been a problem. There's never been an incident of coercion or abuse with the medication. That was Hawaii State Director for Compassion and Choices, Samantha Trad, talking about the two-year anniversary of the medical aid and dying law and the bills introduced this week proposing to tweak the program. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamran Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org Ever wonder why a garden snake feels so much scarier than invisible threats like viruses? The modern world has a whole different array of hazards from the ancient world, and a lot of these uh, modes of thinking were shaped in the cave, so to speak. Why we're often scared of the wrong things. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following says you. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's your backyard quiz time. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're taking a look at some of our feathered friends. Last Friday, a bill was introduced in the Hawaii State Senate that would further regulate how farmers can find egg-laying hens. If passed, this bill would prohibit businesses from selling shell eggs or egg products that are produced by egg-laying hens that are confined, quote, in a cruel manner. This bill comes almost 100 years after Hawaii's first annual egg-laying competition, which started in 1922 by the University of Hawaii's Agriculture Department. The uh, competition ran for over a decade, and farmers from all islands participated to see which hen 
could lay the most eggs during a year. The all-time record was set in 1931 by a hen kept on the University of Hawaii's farm. This hen, named University Queen, laid 323 uh, eggs in 365 days, breaking the all-island records and becoming a national champion. For today's quiz, we want to know what breed of chicken University Queen was. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide, along with civic and community initiatives for residents. Learn more at NareetHawaii.com. Dead deer are piling up on Molokai as drought conditions and other factors contribute to a die-off of the population. The growing number of carcasses attract flies and bring an overwhelming stench that could potentially cause public health problems. That prompted Governor David Ige to issue a disaster declaration to deal with the situation late yesterday. Senator Kalani English and Representative Linda Coit had asked Ige for help, but the solution may not rest solely in the hands of local government. Jake Muse is the owner of Maui Nui Venison. His company has been harvesting axis deer on Maui for over 10 years. The Conversations producer, Russell Subiano, spoke with Muse about managing deer populations across Maui County and potential solutions for Molokai. Is there a significant difference between the way deer is managed on Molokai as opposed to Maui? Is it just the difference in programs or rules or the amount of hunters? I mean, it's a great question. There's And there's a bunch of different parts to that. On the recreational side, um, that is hard to pull because not every, you know, not every hunter is is registering either A, in the areas that they're hunting in, or there's lots of folks that I'm sure hunting for subsistence purposes that don't necessarily have like a hunting license either, which is one way to track, you know, the number of animals that are being harvested, you know, via, I guess, the term hunting. But there's definitely, you know, anecdotally, there's probably more hunting on Molokai. It's definitely... uh, you know, an ingrained part of that culture, and it definitely is on Maui as well. Maui has, you know, two to 300,000 acres of available, like, hunting area. On the commercial side and or management outside of public land, so all of those hunters are, like, most often hunting on public lands, the management of access deer on private land falls to the landowner. That's mm-hmm. not dictated by the state. Uh, there's obviously no bag limits or anything else, so each landowner has a different approach, and each landowner finds... I think different value in different population levels, right? Yeah. Uh, there's lots of programs. There's lots of folks on Maui that want to see sustainable levels because they find value in them as a hunting resource and a food resource. And, other, and there's other folks like some of our farming community that have zero tolerance, like they can't afford to have any animals on property. So everybody has a very different approach. I think the biggest difference between you know Maui and Molokai right now is Maui still has an emerging population. So Axis deer weren't weren't introduced to Maui until the late 60s and 70s, and that population is continuing to grow and spread and establish itself. The deer on Molokai have been established for, let's call it, the last 60 years. And so they're at their maximum density, and that's only going up and down each year with available feed. And what we're seeing on Molokai this year is a self-correction with a perfect combination of, you know, drought conditions and probably what's probably leading to the problem is the previous five years were really excellent conditions. So I think what like not a lot of folks are talking about in the previous four to five years, we've had almost perfect amounts of rain and dry weather to see populations like proliferate. And so what we're seeing now is maybe a trend back to some of the typical weather we saw eight, 10 years ago, and there being an overabundance of access deer and something outside what they're uh, their own balanced densities have looked like on Molokai for the last, you know, 40, 50 years. And this is just, this is that correction. It's them, you know, equaling themselves out, right? Yeah, it seems like, you know, nature always has its own uh, ebbs and flows. Yep. Everything moves in cycles. And so it seems like 
this is the the cycle where there's too much demand for food and not enough supply. And it, it sounds like the real issue is that the carcasses are, are stacking up and, and that it poses a, a health issue. Do you have any insight into how that's happening? Do you have any friends or, or relatives on Molokai that are dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that as they, as they, like as starvation starts to set in and they become lethargic, they'll start moving around a lot less and going to where the only available feed is, and that's usually roadways. Because you're going to have a, a little bit of run, like water runoff or dew that's coming off of that asphalt or cement collects on the side of the roads, and that's when you're driving around, you see that little bit of green grass. So they're like moving towards roadways, which are obviously highly visible, and they're moving towards backyards, which are, which are highly visible. And in the end, that's why everybody's seeing it. They're probably not seeing what I'm sure are hundreds, if not thousands, of deer that are potentially dying in other locations as well. Um, but it's becoming much more visible because they're also moving away from their daily habits. Actually, they are actually primarily nocturnal. They like to do almost the vast majority of their feeding and moving around at night. Okay. We've, done like se- we've done several collared studies, uh, like track movements and what they eat. And these are primarily nocturnal animals. It's one of the reasons we only harvest at night for the commercial side of what we do. And so what you're also seeing is them taking very uncharacteristic behavioral patterns, and which means... They're showing up in people's backyards in the middle of the day when they would have never seen that before. That deer could have very well have lived, you know, 300 yards away from that person in a holly coal forest and them not know they were there. But now they just don't care. They're just trying to food, trying to find food if and when they can. And I think that's probably part of the issue as well is people are just seeing them at times and in places they usually wouldn't. Which island were deer imported to first? Was it Molokai? Yeah, it was Molokai. Uh, late 1800s, they were... Contrary to popular belief, uh, we were able to look at a couple of uh, Hawaiian, old Hawaiian newspapers, and they weren't, uh, they weren't actually a gift to the king. There's, there's language that says, like, he was desirous to obtain them. They came down the Yangtze River on a boat called the Loch Nagar, and they're a really interesting story, but they were introduced to Molokai in the late 1800s. And really interesting, as early as 1910, there's articles in newspapers saying uh, they had a California company come over and harvest 5,000 deer in 1910 because they were already starting to destroy the forest on Molokai. So management efforts, you know, it's, it's so interesting. The same year, there's arguments in within, like, the governmental time frame. I think it was Unalio or somebody brought one over to Oahu and got in a big trouble. So yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, like, management for Axis deer has been ongoing since the early 1900s and has people have agreed to disagree for that same period of time and i think that'll you know continue but in the end it's you know it's something that has to be addressed and there'll be different solutions in different places and you know specifically with different landowners because they have that choice is their own and um yeah so there's definitely no straight answer for sure yeah i was i was just thinking about that as as you were speaking about it some government help and some government intervention seems like it's one part of the solution but it also seems like another part of the, of the solution has to come from landowners and, and the community. Does it seem that way to you, that it's sort of a multi-pronged approach or a multi-pronged solution? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, like, there are very, very clear, straightforward solutions. Like, for instance, on Molokai, if you want to grow anything, you need a fence. Period. End of story. There's no level of management, you know, even in the next, 5, 10, 15 years, even if the community can decide on it, that you still need that fence. So, and, and the farming community, it's the Molokai farmers. That's the name of their high school. Like, they're intelligent. They, they can do it really well. They just need that. They need, they need help with that tool. And there's lots of great avenues to funnel, you know, that type of funding through so that fencing can be made available along with a great farm plan and the other things that would go into, like, that ask for a grant. Maui is a completely different story. Right now on Maui, you know, with an emerging population, every single deer harvested makes a difference. The effort to balance populations on Maui is significantly easier than finding some level of balance on Molokai. So, again, it, it really depends on, like, what's happening in those different places. Like, again, it's just my personal opinion, but money spent on immediately reducing populations on Maui for the same dollar spend has a much more, like a much significant impact for Maui versus 
that same dollar value spent on fencing on Molokai would have a, a much greater impact on the ag industry as a whole there. The hard thing on Molokai is when you're dealing with an established population who's essentially now only keeping itself in check, typically with an emerging population on Maui, you see a 33% reproductive rate or a, like in, as a function of like total herd dynamics, you'll see a growth of 33% a year. On a uh, on Molokai or Lanai, where the population is already established, you're only seeing a 12 to 15% increase in population each year, and that's varying based on like their collective health and, and what the feed is available. The scary part is if you go in and you don't harvest enough animals, so let's say you went into Molokai, and, I mean, numbers aren't exact, but let's say you harvested 10,000 animals, and it wasn't enough to change those population dynamics, there's going to be more feed available the subsequent year, more fawns are going to survive, and you will actually have an increase in population on the following year versus what you were trying to do. Wow. So you got to be super careful, too. Like, yeah. the solution isn't, well, well, we'll kill a couple thousand deer or we'll euthanize a couple thousand deer and it's going to make a difference. On Molokai and Lalai, if you don't get that number right, it's going to get worse. So part of it is, like, having really clear population data, um, and a clearly structured management plan that inclusive of the community's, you know, thoughts and, and the different places and landowners involved. And, and so it's, it's, it's complicated and it has to be, I think, really well thought out on a, on a place like Molokai. Maui, because the population is currently at, we have about 50,000 deer on Maui, and that's going to move to 210,000 deer unless we get ahead of that curve. Um, Every deer right now makes a difference on Maui in that curve, right? Yeah. Um, and they're going to stay at 33% until they're doing what they're doing on Molokai, which is, you know, eating themselves to death. Yeah. So, again, really different solutions for different places. Hopefully hopefully this brings light to the situation and, um, you know, communities on Molokai can come together and, and, you know, landowners on Maui that do have access here right now can, um, you know, move forward with some additional help from the government and some of this funding that hopefully becomes available to like again if they can just bring some of these tools forward for our private landowners and communities that's that's a that's a big first step for sure right on thanks for your time jake yeah it was, i appreciate it russell thank you very much that was the conversations russell subiono talking with maui nui venison's owner jack muse you can learn more about the efforts to balance access to your populations uh, impacts their local environment communities and food systems at MauiNuiVenison.com. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Opera Theater's Hot Digital, featuring opera Connie Kapila with baritone Quinn Kelsey and ukulele artist Taimani Gardner. Tickets now available at hotdigital.vhx.tv. You know, sometimes the topics we cover or the guests we interview strike a chord with our listeners. Our talkback line is how you can share your thoughts when our show makes an impression. This listener left us a message in response to a story that we aired last week. This is Larry from the island of Hawaii. I'm referring to Kuvehi Hirishi's story on Thursday on the Historic Preservation Division. I've had personal experience here in Ho'opaloa on the Kona side over the last three years. Underfunded, undermanned, uh, inconsistent in their agenda and uh, they are now pursued, uh, preserving our Iwi Kupuna, and I am uh, hoping for improvement. Thank you. And after re-airing a 2018 interview with the Hawaii chapter of Proud Voice founder Nick Oakes on January 11th, the listener comments continue to come in. Yes, my name is uh, William Kaiva, and I just wanted to share a comment about, I know you guys said this Proud Voice, I really don't know too him personally and you know it's it's i wish that he would not use proud boys hawaii because he's not born and raised here he's probably he don't know about our aina and aloha and uh, you know i don't think hawaii is a part of this proud boys situation and he's trying to build his followers here and i think it's just totally wrong 
I think he should take go back where he came from, and and that's where he should implant it. But to begin with, totally, you know, this racism against colored people is totally wrong, and hatred, it's totally wrong. And um, I hope God can find a way to heal these people. Mahalo nui. And last month, we aired a story about a rebroadcast of a concert honoring Kalaupapa musicians. One of our listeners told us his story about the time he paid an unplanned visit to the area. Hello, my name is Jim Smart. I live in Hawaii Kai. I had, an, uh, I had a few adventures on Kalaupapa, on Molokai. But the, fun, the craziest one was when we uh, paddled ashore there and were met by a resident called Richard Mark who was kind of like the the nickname was the mayor. And he was going to drive us around to the airstrip where another friend was going to pick us up with his plane because you're not really allowed to stay there or visit there. You have to be escorted by him. And when the plane came, it had a mechanical trouble and couldn't take off. And the sun was setting and it got dark. And we said, oh, we'll just camp here. And, And Richard Marks wouldn't leave us. Like, he wouldn't leave us unattended. So he said, oh, I can put you up in the old Coast Guard housing at the lighthouse. And we spent the most amazing night in the moonlight on Kalapapa. We ended up staying there one night, and we got a different plane to pick us up in the morning. And we got to do, uh, we got to do what no one is allowed. No visitors are allowed to spend the night there. So we feel very lucky. Aloha. And two listeners responded to our call-in show featuring Go Farm Hawaii's new farmer program uh, back on January 12th. Hi, this is Linda Martin. I live on Hawaii Island. And I'm wondering if um, if this program, uh, Go Farm Hawaii, has a program for homeowners who want to do backyard growing. It's not farming, but it is creating produce. Uh, which can be shared with local people. So um, I would be interested in knowing if they, because I've been trying to do it, and I'm not real successful. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I would like to know if they do have such a program or if they might be developing one. Thank you. Hi, my name is Neil, and I live in Kaneohe, and I was just listening to today's show about Go Farm. And a lady called in talking about tomatoes uh, from Mexico versus Camoela. And I was thinking, oh, and also uh, there's a discussion about um, how there's just not enough farming capacity currently in Hawaii. And I was thinking, you know, people should be growing their own stuff in their backyard um, I do, and it's wonderful to eat my own my own vegetables, my own eggplant and tomatoes and cucumbers. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. I know the state um, has a program, a master gardener program. Uh, I think it's run in Pearl City. But I just think more people can be growing their own food. Of course, it's not they're not going to be growing enough to feed themselves, but just to supplement their um, their diet, it would be great. Anyway, thank you. As Neil mentioned, there is a Master Gardener program at the Urban Garden Center at Pearl City. It's one of several sites run by the University of Hawaii. You can find links at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And finally, we received this email about our Matson show that we rebroadcast on Christmas Eve. Hi, Conversation folks. Just heard you're doing a story today about the Lurleen ships. In 1969, I was a steward or bellboy based in Honolulu on the last round-trip voyage carrying passengers to the West Coast and around the islands. This was the fall of 1969. After that, the ship was sold to the Greeks and headed to the Greek islands to work there or to be turned into scrap metal. It was a great summer job while it lasted. Lots of Honolulu-based people working on board, like Jimmy Borges, Melvin Lee, Bernie Hallman, etc. Lots of good memories. Mike May. Hey, thanks for sharing that story, Mike. You know, we uh, certainly think you're very lucky to have had that experience. Uh, 
we love your feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line 792-8217. In today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know what breed of chicken won the 1931 annual egg-laying competition in Hawaii. That year's champion, named University Queen, laid 323 eggs and was a single-comb white leghorn chicken. The leghorn breed originated in Tuscany and was first brought to North America in the 19th century. Leghorns lay white eggs and generally average 280 eggs a year. Their high egg production has made them the sample breed of commercial egg operations since the 20th century. University Queen lived with roughly uh, 100 other leghorn chickens in the University of Hawaii's flock. Professor Charles Bice, who cared for the university's chickens, uh, attributed Queen's success to good breeding and a healthy diet. She enjoyed avocados, bananas, and sweet potatoes in particular. And congratulations to our winner, uh, Eric Salasa from Makiki. He says he's a backyard farmer, and he has two leghorns that produce fresh eggs daily. Aren't you lucky? Well, that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. It is now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light has a vaccine story online today. Good morning, Brittany. Hi, Brittany, there. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, okay. So, yeah, um, you were taking a look at the, well, giving us a snapshot of the vac- vaccination uh, campaign here. Uh, what can you share with our listeners? Yes, so the update is that more than 100,000 Hawaii residents have been vaccinated so far across the state against the coronavirus since December 14th when the state, you know, launched into being able to vaccinate. Um, Now, the state says it has the capacity now to vaccinate as many as 70,000 people each week. Uh, So we're clearly not at that level yet. Um, And what's holding that up is the fact that uh, the federal government you know, is dealing with a supply shortage of the vaccine. And so the state isn't receiving as much vaccine as it would like to. And uh, the vaccine that it is receiving, it's, it's, you know, it's not steady. It's not something that they can plan around. Sometimes they get, you know, less than, than they're planning to get. And that makes it difficult for the state and healthcare workers to, to make appointments and, and make sure that there are enough people, you know, ready to receive the vaccine. And President Joe Biden, you know, is trying to ramp things up so that we have more vaccine available for everybody. Yes. So his administration does plan to purchase more vaccine. uh, And if that happens, those added doses could speed things up for Hawaii. And, you know, if Hawaii is able to get its hands on on more doses, uh, and this is, of course, an issue for, for all the states, not just for us. But if Hawaii is able to get its hands on on more doses, uh, health officials here in Hawaii say that we should be able to vaccinate everybody in Hawaii who wants to get vaccinated by August or September. So that would be a really good goal for us to achieve. It just kind of depends on the supply that we're able to get our hands on. Yeah, so you and I have to wait our turn <laughs> in line as, as they get to these uh, priority groups first. I was kind of surprised. I happened to be down uh, by the Blaisdell yesterday afternoon, and they were doing one of their large mass you know, vaccination uh, uh, programs. I think it was Queen's uh, staff that was uh, rolling that out, and there were long lines for our Kapuna. Right, and so, 
You know, I think what we're seeing is right now there's so much more demand um, than the supply can meet. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when, when supply hopefully does increase. Because what we know is that, of course, healthcare workers were first in line to get inoculated here in Hawaii. Um, right now, about 80% of our medical workers have chosen to do that, and they have been vaccinated. Uh, but what, what we know anecdotally is that the healthcare workers, they're more willing to get vaccinated than the rest of the general public. And um, there's a new survey that was released last week that found that only half of Hawaii residents who were surveyed said they were likely to take the vaccine if it were immediately available. Um, a quarter of the people who were surveyed, there were about 3,800 folks in this survey, a quarter of them said they were unlikely to get vaccinated and the rest were still undecided. So, you know, we still have some work to do in terms of um, getting people on board with, with vaccination. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because I just talked to a friend of mine who got her vaccination through Kaiser and she said it was, you know, pretty pretty quick. Uh, she didn't have to wait too long. Um, but, yeah, I do kind of worry about some of our kapuna when they're standing in, in long lines out there, particularly with the, the windy and wet weather we've been having. It's not a good, it's not a good week to be standing in a line outdoors. <laughs> no. No. And, and so uh, I guess the survey then, uh, health officials are, though, optimistic that uh, people will, uh, you know, if they're on the fence, will change their mind? I think they're optimistic, and uh, anecdotally, what they're finding is that when people finally do get the chance, it's their turn in line. You know, more often than not, they're saying yes, even if they had been hesitant. Um, you know, when people get that chance and they don't know when that chance is going to come again, there are these supply issues. People are saying, okay, you know, I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to, to gather eventually uh, when it becomes safe to do so. And, and this is another tool that will get us closer to that milestone. Yeah, and I know the different islands have uh, different systems to distribute the vaccine, so hopefully uh, there aren't any more um, hiccups. But thanks so much, Brittany. You bet. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org. You know, as we said, the vaccine rollout here in Hawaii is limited to how many doses are sent our way. Every Thursday, the state is told how much of a supply we'll receive the following week. The logistics can be problematic as health officials are trying to schedule as many people in the high-risk group without wasting the precious vaccines. ARP Hawaii is reaching out to our kapuna this weekend who may not have access to computers but have a phone. Executive Director Kayla E. Lopez explains how the telephone town hall meeting is supposed to work. The telephone hall this Saturday at 9 o'clock is a opportunity for people to call in, ask questions of our guests who are going to be Lieutenant Governor Josh Green and Dr. Sarah Kimball, who's the state's acting epidemiologist, to find out more about who's eligible to be vaccinated now, where are the locations uh, for these vaccine distributions, and what's the process for either being able to call to register or go online to register to vote. I think folks are very concerned about uh, kupuna in particular who might not be able to go online and we definitely have some thoughts about what people can do to help them but we are hoping to get a lot more information out via the teletown hall this coming saturday there has been the push for the priority groups right 75 and older and those with underlying conditions right now the states in what they call tier 1b which are kupuna 75 and older and frontline essential workers. Uh, the next phase, which is once, I guess, uh, states able to get through this particular group, which might take actually about a month or two before they can get to the next group, which is the 65 and older, and then adults that have comorbidities. We have had some of the sites that have actually run out of doses and aren't taking any more appointments or have had to turn people away, which I know is frustrating for folks who have, you know, are anxious to get the vaccine. The good thing is that a lot of people in Hawaii want to be vaccinated, so that's kind of a good challenge. Hopefully, with the Biden administration push to increase the amount of vaccines that will be coming to Hawaii, 
uh, we'll be able to see a shift in people being able to get vaccinated. But at the same time, Catherine, I think the main thing people have to be is very patient. It's going to take a while. Not everyone's going to be vaccinated tomorrow, but everyone who wants to be vaccinated will eventually be vaccinated. It's just going to take a while to get through, you know, a, a, a several hundred thousands of people who are in different phases of that tiered approach to be vaccinated. And we have seen the mass vaccination sites here on Oahu. I think there were some hiccups on Maui. Uh, anything else you can share with us about what's happening on the neighbor islands? On the neighbor islands, Big Island in particular, KTA has been really great about helping with getting vaccinations also to care homes and being able to have some of those drive-through opportunities for people to sign up. But again, in a lot of these situations, you want to be able to get appointments, make sure you show up on time and get your appointments. But the challenge is really for many of these sites, Catherine, is they don't really know until the week before. So the state doesn't know until Thursday how much the vaccine they're going to receive Tuesday. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult to plan. I think they've worked out a lot of the kinks, especially on Maui. There, were a little, there was a little bit of hiccup, but I think they've worked out the kinks uh, here on Oahu, being able to do the mass vaccination. The truth of the matter is, as soon as the state can get more vaccines coming into Hawaii, uh, the community uh, health centers, what they call federally qualified health care facilities like your YNI comps and your community clinics will also begin to provide vaccinations. And that's really going to be an opportunity for people in the community to have more ready access than they might have. We did mm-hmm. see the effort to roll out the vaccines at some of the care homes. Yes. So the care, the larger care homes, uh, that they are pretty much been taken care of. The state's done a really good job. In fact, I think Hawaii's the only state that had these smaller care homes, you know, that have five to seven uh, residents in them. It's the only state that's had that group prioritized, which is our kupuna who are frail and in these homes. And they've worked with the local pharmacies to actually go into those homes and vaccinate the residents in the community, throughout the community. Yes, and then, you know, Queens had their mass vaccination site, uh, HPH Mm -hmm. did. Well, Leeward Community College, they've done them at Castle. They've got some on the Windward side. So they've been these, what they're calling points of dispensing, you know, which which are, you know, even UH had one. So there are, again, going to be, I think, more sites. The challenge right now for Hawaii and probably other states is getting more vaccines coming into the state. And so hopefully the state should see an improvement in that within the next week or two. You know, the other thing for people to keep in mind with these particular vaccines, they have to go for the second dose. So even once the vaccines come in, a certain amount of those have to be set aside to ensure those who already got vaccinated can then get their their second shot. Right. So at those larger uh, mass vaccination sites, you had Queens, you had uh, Hawaii Pacific Health. I know friends uh, said they're getting theirs at Kaiser if they're Kaiser members. Earlier this week, we talked to uh, folks down at Kalopapa. So all of the patients and the health department staff and the nuns, uh, they're all being vaccinated. Right. Um, as an example, Wynai Comp on my side of the island was providing vaccine vaccinations, but again, they ran out. So they're they're going to have to wait till the vaccine, more vaccines become available, and they'll be able to start that up again. Eventually, then the vaccines will be able to get to the private physicians' offices. If not that, at least to pharmacies uh, at some point down the road where just as you can go to your pharmacy to get a flu shot, ideally what they would have in place is also that you can do that. So that's probably going to work for the broader community when we get to, you know, the farthest or largest tier in some ways of folks having to be vaccinated. And I imagine, you know, as folks keep up with the news, because we've had two of these uh, variant viruses Mm. identified here in the community, And the other thing really is still what we've been trying to get people to do, which is mask up and social distance. I mean, the best way to protect kupuna uh, are those of us who keep going in and out of the house for work and whatever else to ensure that they're not bringing the um, virus into the home. And so even once people are vaccinated, it still is recommended that folks wear their mask for a while. So it's going to take a while before 
you know, there's pretty much large herd immunity before people can uh, move away from uh, wearing masks. Okay, but then again, this uh, forum that you've got this weekend, an opportunity for Kapuna across the state to call in, ask questions. Absolutely. So we would we would uh, recommend that people register for that event. Sorry, uh, but you can also just watch on Facebook. It's a telephone town hall. And if folks want to be able to get into uh, that event, it's going to be streamed live on Facebook. And then we'll also record it for another time. And people can go to our AARP Hawaii website uh, to be able to get on. Okay. And so then they, our AARP Hawaii Facebook page. So they can watch it later uh, if they don't participate mm-hmm. uh, during yes, the actual if thing. Yes, if they miss it. Mm-hmm. Okay. The one thing that's really nice about it is a telephone call, um, you know, if you register with us, you're able to uh, basically get a call back and you get a telephone call and are able to hear the program and then like your radio show, Catherine, and then be able to ask questions of uh, Dr. Farrah Kimball or the lieutenant governor. That was Kelly E. Lopez, director of AARP Hawaii, talking about a telephone town hall meeting this weekend. It's a chance for Kapuna to ask questions about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Well, that's our show today. Up tomorrow, we hear more about a new Hawaii film debuting on Netflix. And hey, if you got questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air, please call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation.